welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod. Today, I am here with Anthony Park, who is a Bitcoin executor, and he has some strong opinions and great advice on how to prepare your estate for transferring your Bitcoin to the next generation. Thanks for joining me, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Now, Anthony, I just want to clarify, this advice is for U.S. citizens, correct? Is this applicable to any other country? Yes, it's primarily directed to U.S. citizens. I'm sure we'll cover some of the ways to approach custody that I believe transcends borders and has more to do with how to organize your technology and and transfer of custody. So I don't think that's necessarily specific to the U.S. But yes, I am a U.S. attorney. So uh, anything that seems to broach into the legal area, probably best if you consider it New York specific or U.S. advice. And just before we begin, Anthony, how did you get the idea to orient your legal business towards Bitcoin? What was that process? So my bread and butter business is I am a professional executor in general, not specific to Bitcoin, but for, I guess you would call them legacy assets or legacy estates. That in and of itself is not that common. It used to be the realm of big banks for uber wealthy clients only. But, you know, a lot of folks are realizing for various reasons that either their heirs don't want to have the burden or they don't want to burden put that burden on their heirs or People now don't all live in the same state or even city anymore. So if your if your family all lives overseas or vice versa, that can also be quite difficult for for various reasons. And then there might be something specific to the assets that makes it difficult for for everyday folks to execute an estate, whether it's collectibles, artwork, a small business, and so forth. And before you go on, if you don't mind, let's just define the terms. So can you just define what is an estate and what an executor does? Sure, uh, a person's estate is their net worth, all their assets, and also responsibility for all their debts and taxes upon their passing. And the executor is the person who will be appointed by the court, the local applicable court, to have the legal authority to transact and take care of those assets, debts, and taxes to get them down to a net number, meaning all the debts and taxes have been satisfied. And once you have that remainder, the executor is responsible for distributing that to the heirs as listed in your will, trust, or by default inheritance laws. I see. And obviously, this is an issue that will affect Bitcoiners because Bitcoin is this pristine, immortal asset. It doesn't really degrade. It's not a company, so it's not going to go bankrupt and uh, the stocks will be worthless. It's this thing like, like gold, I guess, that you can pass through time. So this is going to be a process that many Bitcoins will go through. So how did you have the inspiration to connect your experience with executing estates with the Bitcoin community and the needs of Bitcoiners? It started with my own journey to understanding Bitcoin. And I have probably a similar path to a lot of folks where I was involved with a lot of other coins in the beginning. (laughs) And then I eventually sort of evolved to primarily uh, holding Bitcoin and then transitioning from centralized exchanges to self-custody. And as I learned more about self-custody, I realized just from my, it was very obvious to me, like, wow, this is going to be a problem when somebody passes away. (laughs) Is the problem you noticed that for you to have access to my Bitcoin, you have the ability to take all my Bitcoin? Is the issue that it's just difficult to sort of give someone the beginnings of access that they can then kind of get full access later? Yeah, it's absolutely that balance between measures to avoid you know, absolute loss versus, you know, how much are you exposing yourself to the risk of 
you know, theft or hack. I see. And before we get into the self-custody side of this, what is the general advice you give Bitcoiners who maybe haven't thought about preparing their will, which I guess is the, is the document that sort of tells the world how you want your estate to be distributed among people who've survived you? What is that general process, you know, 10,000 foot view? How do you prepare your estate for Bitcoin transfer? My first advice, and this is based on having visited and spoken with a lot of Bitcoiners at various meetups, conferences, and events. My first piece of advice before anything else is you must have some plan in place. Even if you hate it, even if you hate all the trade-offs that come with it, even if it's it makes you or you cringe at the idea that you have a quasi-trusted third party involved, or if you believe this is not the high level of OPSEC I would prefer, I get it. But you have to have something in place because there is no backup plan. There is no safety net. There is no Department of Unclaimed Funds or Password Recovery. So put in a plan that you know, or you're, you're not know, but you're, you're fairly confident will work, even if you hate it, and then work towards improving on that. Don't proceed planless while you seek that perfect solution. That That's my number one piece of advice. So don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I think we say that almost every week on our podcast. Now, another question is, how much Bitcoin do you need to have to make a plan? Can we just talk numbers? Because I think sometimes people are unsure about the amount of Bitcoin that is large enough to say warrant self-custody, warrant multi-sig custody, and now we're talking about additional structures. So ballpark, in your opinion, at what amount of Bitcoin you're hodling, do you want to start thinking about plans like this? The standards are similar to the standards you would apply when figuring out when to advance from your seed phrase written down on a piece of paper to investing in a single hardware wallet to investing in a multi-sig. So whatever that means for you, whether it's, um, you know, what is a hardware wallet nowadays? You can get a pretty good one for 50 bucks. You know, you obviously have to have some multiple of that to make it worth it. And multi-sig, which is three devices at the very, not that the very, I think you can do two or two, but you know, it's multiple devices. <laughs> you could do two devices and an offline seed. So, you know, you could just do two right, hardware right. wallets. Right. So whatever the cost is involved with that, and not just the cost of the devices themselves, but the complexity cost and uh, the mental energy to set it up and monitor it. It depends on what, what amount you believe is worth it. It could be as low as what's currently the current fiat exchange rate of a few thousand dollars per whatever your stash is, because you believe that by the time you pass away, you know, if you're a young man, that it'll be worth a lot more. It's very hard to, um, to put a number on that. Yeah. Or a young woman. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. Now you said that we need a plan. What does this plan look like? What are the documents we need? What are the people we need to talk to and involve in this plan? Well, it's really two tracks. There's the legal plan, meaning the legal documentation for who has rights to be in possession or to transfer possession. But equally as important for self-custodied Bitcoin or technically any cryptocurrency is um, what steps have you taken to allow others to gain and transfer custody if you disappear, if you die, if you are unavailable. Because in the absence of that custody plan, maybe we can go into those statistics and those you know horror stories, but huge numbers of Bitcoin can just disappear or not disappear, obviously, but um, remain inaccessible for the rest of time. Yeah. I think that the horror story sort of motivates the plan. And obviously, we're not trying to scare anybody. But let's start with a horror story or two to get people excited. And then they can hear the list of documents and legal professionals they need to consult. 
from the realm of the living, there was the um, the English bloke who had all his his Bitcoin on a, I think it was a hardware wallet, or it may have been an encrypted USB drive, some small device, which he kept in his desk drawer at, in his loft, single SIG. But then I think, he, I think he went to jail. I think he was arrested for something. <laughs> and when he came back, uh, when he was released, he went back to the landlord and said, hey, where's my stuff? He's like, it's in a landfill. So this this gentleman has somewhere in a British landfill buried somewhere a thumb drive that's worth I, th- I think the last time I looked at a, an article about this you know hundreds of millions of dollars. Wow, are you familiar with that story? <laughs> I haven't heard that story. I generally follow the laptops in the landfill, and there was actually a resolution to one of those. The guy had spent over a hundred thousand pounds, I think, to excavate a landfill and discovered the hard drive he had lost, and it was actually full of Bitcoin cash. It was worthless. <laughs> oh, wow, I hadn't heard that one. <laughs> you know, hearing that story, you could say, well, it sounds like this person needed to back up their seed. They needed to, you know, seed backup in a secure place. And obviously that would have been difficult with a single SIG wallet because anyone who saw that seed would immediately have access to the funds. I get your point. Things can happen and your wallet can be lost. Your seed could be lost. The agents of the government might come to your house and they know what a seed looks like today. And I don't know about the UK, but in the US, my sense is that due to recruiting difficulties, the quality of law enforcement professional may be falling. And uh, based on recent reporting about all the uh, illegal stuff ICE agents have been doing, and I'm, I'm not even sure that the Bitcoin would be confiscated by the government, you know, so you might not even have any due process to sort of say, hey, can you give that back? You know, it might just be an agent who takes it or someone who sees it. So this is risky, you know, self-custody is very, very risky. So now I'm interested, what, you know, what do you think about uh, self-custody recommendations? Do you think people should do multi-sig or do you have something else in mind? Yeah, bottom line is uh, currently it seems like some version of a multi-sig is is what makes the most sense. And and the the question isn't, you know, whether or not it's multi-sig or not, but rather who holds the keys and how many. And before we go into that, some of the alternatives I looked at before sort of concluding that at this time, at least, multi-sig or some version of it seems to be the best solution. You know, I went through dead man switches. I went through letters of instruction. I went through sharding, what is it called? Shamir's secret sharing. Many of these other um, potential techniques for sharing in a somewhat safe way possession or, or custodies upon your passing. And just for various reasons, mostly it had to do with other solutions being way too complicated, even though multi-sig is also complicated. Multi-sig seems to be the least of all evils, I guess. And actually, it's also the most developed and more supported, so that it feels like the most likely to succeed uh, upon your passing. And let's just list some multi-sig options. So I I don't know if you know this, but I actually lost most of my Bitcoin in a uh, poorly formulated multi-sig years ago. Oh, dear. So you need to be careful. And that's why I don't recommend, you know, using Electrum Wallet and YOLOing a multi-sig. These days, I think that Sparrow Wallet is a really excellent multi-sig platform. Do you have other recommendations? Well, again, my focus is on maximizing the likelihood of of it working upon your passing. If there was to be an internal debate, uh, somebody else should represent the maximizing security. So if somebody says, if a listener, you know, says, hey, wait, wait, that, that that's a bit risky, I totally acknowledge that. Again, my goal is to give you a plan that is going to maximize success. And then when something better comes along, let's, I'm all for it. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I guess I just want to have tangible details because I think that sometimes when these conversations are too abstract, mm-hmm. people are like, okay, well, where do I start? I, you know, I, you didn't give me a name. So I totally agree with you that uh, the DIY multi-sig is usually technically too difficult for most folks. So just go with one of the 
service providers who manages the multi-sig for you, or at least helps you set it up, whether that's Unchained or Casa, or I think Nunchuck now does a version of it. I know, I think um, I think both Casa and Unchained KYC you. So again, people are going to hate that. But again, have something that you're fairly confident that will work and then hone down the details later, uh, just at least as long as you have something in place. Okay, great. So we've talked about the mechanics of custody and you're saying multi-sig. Now let's talk about who holds those multi-sig keys and what documents you think are part of that process. So who holds the keys? First of all, I think there should be multiple layers of redundancy. And what I mean by that is if you have a two of three, let's just say, it doesn't necessarily mean you only have three key holders. You can actually have six or nine or 12 key holders, meaning you can have multiple key holders of each key. Again, I know there are security experts that will poke holes in this, but I'm again trying to make sure that at least somebody will be able to recover. And what you want to do is you want to put those key holders in different buckets or different groups. Basically, they don't know each other or they're to minimize the likelihood that any two will conspire together to to form the key without your permission or during your life. So one way of approaching that would be, let's call them keys A, B, and C, yes? The A keys can be friends or family members, those who would basically most likely be folks who would inherit. So they're the ones who kind of have an incentive to make sure this all goes well because they inherit anyway, yeah? Whereas your B keys can be third parties who have more of a business relationship with you, whether it's a professional executor such as myself, whether it's a company such as Unchained, or I think Block is doing this soon, or Nunchuck, or Casa, or your attorney, your CPA, some, somebody along those lines. And then from those two tracks, your A and B key holders, and, and C can be yourself, you know, that can be the one that only you have, for example. But from those two tracks, you, you got to make sure that some com- there's, there's a, there are multiple combinations where one of the key holders knows what they're doing. <laughs> and that's not necessarily such an easy thing to do. You can't have it all be, you know, friends and family who think you're crazy for, for having Bitcoin <laughs> and know nothing about self-custody. <laughs> and I guess you need a map. So your inheritors, the people who are inheriting this Bitcoin, they need to have a document that says, here's a list of the keys and who has them. You know, good luck finding someone who hasn't lost it already, right? Pretty much. I hope we can get to some sort of standard, I don't know if you want to do that, but where, you know, if you have a will that lists all the heirs and lists all the executors, and that's what wills generally look like, kind of everyone, it's already there. Everyone knows who to talk to about potential key holders. And again, that's just one way of going about it. Instead of having to have a whole separate sort of directory of who are the key holders, you just kind of assumed, oh, look, I'll talk to the executor. When I combine my key with his, we can start, we can get things going. We can start, you know. Okay. So I wanted to ask you about this. Now, I, I know that in your workshop in Adopting Bitcoin conference in El Salvador last year, which I was at the conference. I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to talk to you. It was a great conference, wasn't it? It was so great. I'm going again this year with um, my co-host, uh, Chris, from Jupiter Broadcasting. So I hope maybe we'll see you there. Or Got to check with the wife. We'll see. <laughs> but in your free workshop, you basically walk people through making a will. So is there something specific to Bitcoin custody that you have to keep in mind when you're creating this will? Well, in the workshop, I walked through how to make your own DIY will with free online software. Uh, I currently recommend freewill.com. It's pretty good stuff. But the reason I was recommending free software is because, uh, and a do it DIY will, as opposed to, you know, 
getting a referral and finding an expensive attorney and doing all that is because I'm trying to reduce the friction. I'm trying to make this as easy as possible so that every self-custody Bitcoin holder has basically no excuse <laughs> to put in place this basic minimum plan that they, they might hate, but at least they know it'll work. So that's kind of the reason why I presented that uh, DIY will, if that makes sense. I was thinking as I was watching the video, it's not often that a lawyer tells you to make a legal document without consulting and paying for a lawyer. This guy's different. Well, the software is actually really good. I go over this in the presentation, but it's, it was um, developed by all the big charities in the U.S., you know, Salvation Army, Red Cross, etc. So it, it has a lot of legal heft and financing behind it. And the shtick is that throughout the process, there are several prompts that do you want to donate to charity? Do you want to leave something to charity? So I that's just the nag cost. you. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Nagware. <laughs> yeah. But so to answer your original question, why you need to have a document in place is because you need an executor or you need somebody who has the legal authority to reassemble the multisig. You don't want to leave that in a, in a, in a legal gray area. Yeah. Gotcha. Now, when you're describing your Bitcoin holdings and who they go to in this will, do you say, I leave 3.14296 Bitcoins to my dear wife, and I leave 1.999 Bitcoins to my child? I mean, is, is that the sort of thing you might see in one of these documents? That's possible. But in general, the vast majority of wills or trusts are much more just percentages. I give a half to my wife and the other half divided equally amongst my kids. Oh, I see. And it doesn't have to specify asset by asset. In the legacy circumstance, you know, you don't go stock by stock. You just say, I, I give all my stuff this in, in these percentages, whatever the liquid value is upon my passing. And do you have to specify that the Bitcoin should be transferred to that person's wallet? Because I could imagine a situation where sort of like everything is liquidated into cash and then you get the cash. And so that's an, a next level area where a Bitcoiner might want to have a competent uh, or an experienced executor. If it is your wish that your heirs inherit actual Bitcoin in kind, entries on the on the blockchain, not have your executor liquidate and convert into cash, then you can specify that in your will, just as you could with a classic car or a specific share of stock or gold bars. You can you can do that. That's no problem. But you need somebody who knows how to do that and how to educate your heirs and set them up with their own wallets and so forth. I'm basically sold on your premise that everyone needs a plan for their passing and with Bitcoin because of the complexity of it and how many times Bitcoin has been lost. It's a really good idea to have a plan specific to Bitcoin. That seems completely reasonable. Now let's put on our tinfoil hats. Specifying our Bitcoin holdings in this document, in this will, and involving a custody provider like on-chain capital or something, what is our risk here? Is our Bitcoin holdings now a number that is very easy to find by government agencies? Do they now have more of a sense of our Bitcoin holdings and who's a Bitcoiner as a result of these preparations? In your legal documents, that would only be a risk if you specified that you even have Bitcoin. Again, you don't have to. Your will could simply say, all to my wife, and if my wife doesn't survive me, then in equal shares to my kids. That's it. Meaning all my assets, not all my Bitcoin, just general statements like that. But if you specify that you own Bitcoin, I mean, number one OPSEC is to just not even acknowledge that you have any, <laughs> right? Don't put a target on your back. But if you decide to specify in your will that uh, that you own Bitcoin, then um, I guess that's, that's the first level of risk. And is that because wills eventually, are, do they become public? They do become public, but only after you pass away. They're filed with the court, which is um, pretty accessible by public records. But before you pass away, depends on how you store it, or if you have PDF copies of your will floating around, that would be the level of risk. Yeah, You know, if you emailed it, hey, I emailed my, my adult son a copy, so if I pass away, he knows what to do. 
Okay, so if you emailed it in a PDF, then ChatGPT and Google have read it. So it's <laughs> the <Right>. issue. <laughs> in terms of the provi- uh, service providers, you know, I don't know. I'm ac- I actually wonder about that myself. I know that some of these providers, multi-sig providers, I think it's through your, your XPUB. I, I'm, this is where I'm reaching the limits of my technological uh, understanding. But they have an understanding of what's what's in your wallet. So I'm not sure if they can be subpoenaed into revealing that to a government agency or if government agencies don't even need subpoena power I can just uh, or warrant power and can just take that. Right. So in one area, having a attorney or individual key holder as part of your uh, inheritance plan, I think one possible benefit of that is as a licensed attorney, I do have that shield of attorney-client privilege with my clients, uh, whereas I don't think a company can exercise that uh, that level of privilege. I actually don't even know if it applies to a seed phrase or a multi-sig shard or key, but at least that argument can be thrown on the wall and see if it sticks. Yeah. <laughs> And attorney-client privilege is one of those sacred cows in the legal profession where if you say attorney-client privilege, everyone stops and says, wait, 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 that's kind of a big deal. Let's see if that applies here. So at least you have that sort of, yeah, one additional barrier. That was very understandable. There were no sort of uh, surprising twists or turns in this journey to, if you have assets, you need to make a plan for your passing. If you have Bitcoin, it's additionally complicated. So in addition to that plan for passing on the assets, you need to have a custody solution, a multi-signature setup. And then there's the complexity of who holds the keys and, and you have a strategy, which involves friends and family or beneficiaries of the will, professional companies that do custody, and then maybe an attorney or executor. So just to, just to make the contrast as, as stark as possible, I, I don't even necessarily recommend you have to have an estate plan for legacy assets. And the reason for that is the legacy financial world has so many layers of safeguards where if you don't have an estate plan, it's not like you lose your heirs lose all your money. It's just that it goes through sort of another, it drops down to the next level of fail safes. You know, your estate is directed by the default inheritance laws written, you know, by the state. It depends how hard or easy it is to get those assets because, you know, are you going to just look through someone's email account to figure out where all of their financial assets are? What if they have four email accounts? That's what we do on our, our day-to-day basis. For us, at least, who do this on a regular basis, it's it's a pain, but we, we do it. It's not like the funds will ever be lost. It's just a matter of time. But again, in contrast, Bitcoin, if you don't have a custody plan in place and you don't have a legally appointed person to, to run that show, yeah, it's pretty much gone. So that's a pretty big difference between the guide rails or the safety nets that uh, legacy assets have and just the absolute free-for-all that Bitcoin is at, at this time. <laughs> okay, here's an idea. Have you heard about password keepers like Bitwarden? I believe you can set up a Bitwarden structure where if you don't log in for a while, your passwords are kind of transferred to a non- another member of, of your Bitwarden organization. Have you explored technologies like that for sort of getting access to things? That sounds like a version of a, a dead man switch. Are you familiar with that? what that means? Should I go over that real quick? Sure. Why don't you uh, review that? A uh, dead man switch is, um, uh, in this context, is a mechanism or a protocol where if you don't check in, if you don't press a button or if you don't reply to an email, there's different ways of doing it. Uh, every six months or every whatever time interval you set. And if you miss three or five check-ins, then the protocol will release certain information. In, in our case, you know, your seed phrase or a part of your seed phrase to the person who needs to know. Yeah. One of the security drawbacks that I saw, and again, I'm not a technical person, but this is what smarter people than I were pointing out, was that 
if you put your full seed phrase in the dead man switch, that means you've entered it onto a computer somewhere, which is kind of a big no-no, yeah? And you don't know how they're storing that? Right. Are they going to be subpoenaed in the future? Right. Who knows? That was one of the main reasons why I sort of steered clear of the dead man switch type of solution. And then, yes, yeah, so that when, what you end up doing is you end up having to shard it or doing using the dead man switch to deliver a part of a multi-sig, and then, then it kind of becomes, why did I even do the dead man switch? I just, just do the multi-sig. <laughs> That was tight. That was informative. You have clearly thought about this for a long time, and so it's easy for you to describe it. Is there anything else we should know? Should we know what the cost of a professional executor is? Is it a percentage of assets? Is it a fixed rate? You know, is that an important information, or is that something oh, yeah. people should just talk to you about? There's no cost at this time. I, this, so I, I, some folks have kind of politely asked, you know, what's, what's, your, what's your motivation here? Like, what do you get out of this? While you're living, an, an executor gets nothing. <laughs> this is just a nomination on a piece of paper for a future event, you know, you're passing. So naming me or Unchained Capital or your attorney or your accountant as your executor, no money changes hands at that moment. You just have chosen somebody who you feel fairly confident will avoid catastrophic loss upon your passing. And then yes, upon your passing, executive compensation varies state by state. In New York, for example, it's a percentage of the assets depending on the, on the, value, on the size of your estate. But the catch is, or the, the fact that people find surprising is, it's the same fee whether or not you get a mega bank, an experienced attorney professional like myself, or your unemployed nephew who has nothing better to do. They all earn the same fee. So if you're paying or if your estate is paying the same amount, why not get the best fit for your situation? That fact seems to, to really strike home with a lot of folks. Like what is the percentage? What's an example of that? Oh yeah. In New York, it averages out to a tick under 3% for an estate and other states vary. There's always going to be a credit card type fee on, <laughs> on the transaction. It's always like, you know, one to 4%. Again, people are going to hate that. I know a lot of people are going to say, oh, the whole point of this is to get off the I understand, but set up the plan now, and then hopefully between now and when you pass, you will have impl implemented something better. And again, something I want to make sure we, we get to is that estate planning, any estate planning, legacy or Bitcoin, is not zero sum. You don't have to choose one plan and live or die by it. You can layer it and have multiple layers to your estate plan. And what I mean by that is we can set up the, the plan that you hate, <laughs> that we've kind of gone over, that has a, a lot of trade-offs that you're not in love with, but you feel fairly confident, fine, it, I know it'll work even though I don't like these things. And then you can layer on top of that the more esoteric privacy securing plan that you love, whether it's a dead man switch or a, you know, a letter of instruction or a treasure map to different words hidden across the city, <laughs> however you want to do it, which, you know, you might acknowledge, hey, this is, there's a chance my wife won't figure this out. But then at least you'll know if that fails, you'll have that backup in place. You'll have multiple layers, multiple redundancies, and as we like to say, no single point of failure in your estate plan. Right. And I guess this is the argument you're making for a professional like yourself who sort of understands Bitcoin, because if, say, I nominate you as my executor, you know, maybe you'd have time for a phone call and I'd be like, hey, listen, I've got a, some additional instructions I'd like to you to associate with this, this will where I've nominated you. And, you know, you share those with the people on this list or something like that. Maybe, I don't know if something like that is possible, but maybe that increases the likelihood that the Bitcoin, you know, estate plan works. Absolutely. Just anything to have a plan in place that'll work. And it is my hope as well as anyone else's. That between now and, you know, your ultimate demise, there's some better solution, whether it's through smart contracts of some kind or some sort of pretty much universal implementation in wallets. 
something that makes this all unnecessary. But we're not there yet. So until we are, <laughs> just have something, please. <laughs> That's a great end, actually. Do you want to point listeners towards your online presence, your website or Twitter or something? The best place to find me is either on Twitter, BTC Executor, or I guess Stack or News. I find that really a useful place. I am working on a book or maybe even a booklet. I'm not sure how long this has to be. And I'll probably be giving out a lot of free versions of that just to get the word out and just to help. Um, this is very actually anti-self-interested because for every Bitcoin that's lost, you know, the rest of us increase the value of ours theoretically, but that's not the spirit of it, is it now? So <laughs> I know the logic of Bitcoin is so self-optimizing, but you know, what's up, what's with all this selflessness? <laughs> <laughs> I just want good karma. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and opening the door to thinking about estate planning in the context of Bitcoin. There was a lot I didn't know there. I didn't know that you always get an executor, whether you want one or not. I, I guess that makes sense, but I hadn't thought about that. So this is a really interesting conversation, and I think it's very actionable. You could just get started with this, with this uh, free will recommendation, which will be in the show notes. So thank you so much, Anthony. We give away the milk for free on this podcast all the time. I see you are doing the same. <laughs> so much has been given to us in our education process. I'm just trying to give back a little bit. Yeah. Check out Anthony's website, and there'll be some of his writing in the show notes so you can get started thinking about Bitcoin estate planning. Thanks so much, Anthony. Thank you. Oh, and by the way, we should probably disclose, we don't have any kind of financial relationship. So I was just very interested to hear your views on this issue. Again, thanks for having me on. 